Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, closed up the place, and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Well, as we stand, let me pray for us now. The psalmist asked the question, how can a young person keep his way pure? And the answer, by living according to your word, Lord. And so we pray with the psalmist, praise be to you, O Lord, teach me your decrees. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. May that be true of us tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please do sit down. Uh, Let me encourage you to have your Bible to hand. We will be going back to... uh, Genesis chapter 2 in just a moment. The other thing that I think you'll find extremely helpful will be to dig out the the handout of uh, tonight's uh, sermon outline because there are a lot of quotes on there that will help you to see uh, where we're going and help you particularly to see what I think are helpful quotes. Uh, So whether you like taking notes or not, do dig that out and have that to hand and I'll show you where we're at as we go through. Well, as we think about this issue of same-sex attraction this evening, we're engaging with an issue that affects us all. Some in the church family are same-sex attracted. Others will have loved ones who are. Most of us will know people who are. And when we speak to people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we may well be asked our view on this subject because it is a huge issue in today's society watch soaps or dramas on TV, and the plot line will often feature characters who are same-sex attracted. It's not unusual for this to be an issue behind a news story, and if you're into the celebrity culture, you're sure to read about uh, this sort of thing as celebrities talk about their sexuality. So as a church family, this is a subject for us all, and especially when we listen to the words of Ed Shaw. Ed Shaw is himself same-sex attracted, but he's also convinced that the Bible teaches that homosexual practice is wrong. And in this book that I was uh, mentioning a lot last week, and again I'll mention it a lot this week, The Plausibility Problem, he addresses churches saying this, and the quote is on the handout. 
When a same-sex attracted Christian embraces a gay identity and lifestyle, we need to recognize that it might be, to some extent, not just their fault, but ours too. Our response should not just be to shake our heads sadly and call on them to repent, but to look inside at how our attitudes and actions might have pushed them over the edge. I'm not absolving them from, of responsibility, but I am challenging the rest of the church to accept theirs, to ask ourselves the question, are there things that we might need actively to repent of too? Now this evening, I want to take that challenge very seriously indeed and ask how do we, as a church, need to change? What have we got wrong? What must we do differently in the future? And so, do you see, this really is for us all this evening. Where do we start? Well, we need to start by asking, what does the Bible say about marriage? The first point on the handout. And to understand that, we need to go back to the beginning of the Bible, where we've been several times through this series, because in the first chapters of Genesis, we find the foundational truths of the whole Bible when it comes to marriage and sex. So as we turn to the Bible, we must ask ourselves, what does the Bible actually say on this issue? Uh, Kevin DeYoung, uh, writing uh, this book, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? He appeals to us in these words. Again, uh, the quote you'll see is on the handout. If you're not convinced by the lexical, logical, and exegetical arguments, lexical, the study of words, exegetical, the interpretation of texts, If you're not convinced by the lexical, logical, and exegetical arguments, I only ask that you make doubly sure it is the actual arguments that are unconvincing. Our feelings matter, our stories matter, our friends matter, but ultimately we must search the scriptures to see what really matters most. Don't discount the messenger as a bigot if your real problem is with the Bible. I think that's very helpful. We're grappling with an issue that is deeply personal, And it does affect the lives of people in the most intimate ways. But still we must first ask, what does the Bible actually teach? And then if we don't agree with the Bible, let's say that. And not frame our argument to suggest we simply have a different interpretation when in fact all along it is our experience which is driving our opinion. And what's more, as we ask what does the Bible say and uh, look at God's word, we must remember what we saw three weeks ago when we started this series, namely that we'll be tempted uh, to question two things. First, to question God's character. As you remember at the beginning of this series, we saw from Genesis chapter one that God is a good God. And uh, all the more as followers of Jesus Christ, we can see just how good God is. Look at the cross of Jesus. We've been singing about it all evening. We know how much God loves us, for he died for us. He is for us. And knowing that is very important because then we can be sure that God's commands are good and loving and right. Even if we don't understand, always understand why he says what he says, because we know he's good and because we know he is for us, we know that what he says is good and for our good. But as we saw Three weeks ago in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall and ever since we've been tempted to question God's character, to question whether he really is good. So we're going to be tempted to question that. We'll also be tempted, secondly, to question God's word. Remember the words of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Did God really say? That is the question at the heart of this conversation in the wider church. 
What does God actually say about homosexual practice? So turn with me to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. Page 5, page 5 in the church Bibles. And we saw previously when we looked at this earlier from Matthew chapter 19 that Jesus believes these are the very words of God. So God said, verse 24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they'll become one flesh. This is God's definition of marriage. It's not cultural. This is declared before culture. And it is for all time. God said a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And those words can't only be for Adam because Adam didn't have a father and mother. Here God was declaring his definition of marriage for all time. And it is, and if you're following on the handout, you need to turn over at this point. It is firstly between one man and one woman. God's definition of marriage is that it is between one man and one woman. I won't rehearse the whole argument again. You can listen to the first two talks in this series online if you weren't here. But in short, verse 24 says, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. But apart from that verse, we saw from Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and from the word helper in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, that the complementarity of male and female is a crucial ingredient in marriage. What makes the woman the perfect helper for the man is that she is like the man, verse 23, bone of my bones, says Adam, like the man, but differentiated from the man, she shall be called woman. And because marriage is to reflect the greater relationship between Jesus and his church, it only works if the married couple are a complementary pair. That greater relationship cannot be expressed by joining two who are the same. Marriage, as God defines it then, is to be between one man and one woman. Second marriage is to be between one man and one woman for life. And when Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew chapter 19, he says, those whom God has joined together, let no one divide. In marriage between one man and one woman, God joins people. They are united by him. You see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And they are to remain united in marriage for the rest of their lives. Let no one divide. Marriage then is between one man and one woman for life. And third, sex is for marriage. That is marriage between one man and one woman. And we see that in the words at the end of verse 24. They will become one flesh. Ah, the expression one flesh, as we've thought all the way through this series, is used throughout the rest of the Bible to mean sex. In the last three weeks, we've seen again and again that sex is a good, God-given gift to be enjoyed in marriage and exclusively reserved for marriage in order to strengthen marriage. God didn't only invent sex as a means of procreation. But having repeated that, all the way through these last weeks, we've also demonstrated that procreation is an important part of the way human beings were to spread life and blessing all over the world. So sex in marriage is for making babies. And that too shows why homosexual marriage is not part of God's design. And listen to the words of Kevin DeYoung on the, on the handout. 
While it would be wrong to say procreation is the sole purpose in marriage or that sexual intimacy is given only as a means to some reproductive end, it would also be wrong to think that marriage can be properly defined without any reference to the offspring that should and normally does result from one flesh union of a husband and wife. Listen to Glyn Harrison who comments on Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. The fruitfulness spoken of here can only be found in the complementary union of one man and one woman. No other form of sexual union has the potential to bear children. So the foundational passage for the whole of the Bible on marriage and sex tells us that marriage is between one man and one woman for life and that sex is designed by God to be enjoyed in marriage to strengthen the union of a married man and woman. And it is exactly, precisely these truths that I read at the beginning of every wedding that I take. Most of them I'm standing here, just down here. Listen to the words from the Church of England Marriage Service. Again, they're on the handout. Marriage is given that husband and wife may comfort and help each other, living faithfully together in need and in plenty, in sorrow and in joy. It's given that with delight and tenderness they may know each other in love and through the joy of their bodily union may strengthen the union of their hearts and lives. It is given as the foundation of family life in which children may be born and nurtured in accordance with God's will to his praise and glory. And listen to Kevin DeYoung's conclusion. He says, the narrative of Genesis 1 and 2 strongly suggests that the church, what the church has almost uniformly taught. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. A different marital arrangement requires an entirely different creation account. One with two men or two women, or at least the absence of any hints of gender complementarity and procreation. It's hard not to conclude from a straightforward reading of Genesis 1 and 2 that the divine design for sexual intimacy is not any combination of persons or even any type of two persons coming together, but one man becoming one flesh with one woman. Now that is the foundation of the Bible teaching and so the consistent teaching throughout the Bible is that two people of the same gender cannot be married and therefore that sex between two people of the same gender is wrong. That's right through the Bible but let's see it in just one Bible passage this evening. And we're on our second point on the handout. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? We're at the top of page three on the handout. Turn with me if you will to Romans chapter one. Uh, That's page 1128. Page 1,128 in the Bible, Romans chapter 1, and we're going to be looking from verse 19. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul says that we only have to look at creation to be able to see the truth about God. I experience this every time I go skiing. When at the top of the mountain range, I tried to grasp the magnitude of the scene before me, along with the beauty of the sun glinting on the snow-covered mountains, I find myself in sheer wordless wonder. The creation tells me there is a God. And more than that, it tells me about the God who created everything. By looking at creation, verse 20, I can see how powerful he is to create all this. And what he's like, imaginative and creative and ordered and so on. So creation tells me about God. 
but verses 21 to 23, rather than follow the one true creator God, all human beings reject him, all human beings reject him, and we follow our own man-made gods. And one of the key words in the argument here is the word exchange. It's there in verse 23. We exchange the glory of God for images. You see it again in verse 25. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. And that exchange is expressed in the way we live. And not least of all in exchanging what God has ordained in human relationships. So look at verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their own women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men who also, uh, also abandoned natural relations with women, they also exchanged, you see, and were inflamed with lust for one another. Now, homosexual practice is not, only, is not the only expression of this exchange, but it is one very clear expression of how we abandon the natural way God has created things in order to do things our way. Now, please let me state clearly what this is not saying and what I have not just said. First, this is not saying that homosexual practice is a particularly sinful sin. That is very clear as you read on from verse 29. I'll read from verse 28. This is also talking about the exchange. See, verse 28, further, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Do you see the point? I could take any one of those and show you the exchange. I'll do it with just one. Greed. When I am greedy, I exchange the way God designed me and live in a way that is quite opposite. God designed me and you to be like him, to be people who are givers, who are selfless. When we reject him, we exchange that way of living for something quite opposite. Being greedy is to be a taker and selfish. See, it's an exchange and therefore nothing like the created order, nothing like I was created. That is what sin is. So this Bible's passage is not saying that homosexual practice is a particularly sinful sin, but homosexual practice is presented here as a particularly clear demonstration of how we have exchanged what is natural, that is what God has created, and chosen to do something quite different to God's intended design. And of course, that is what sin is, saying I want to live my life my way. I don't care what you said, God, or how you designed things, God. I think I know best. That's what sin is. Second, please understand, uh, this is the other thing that I want you to hear what has not been said, to understand there is a difference between practice and orientation. This Bible passage is talking about homosexual practice. If you are tempted to sin sexually in any way, but you don't give in to that temptation, then you have not sinned. But clearly here, homosexual practice is sin. And, and thirdly, and this might be um, probably the most difficult thing of what I'm 
going to say now, but it's really important to stay with it. Don't make the teaching of this passage personal, by which I mean, this is not saying that an individual will be going, given over to, by God, to homosexuality, homosexual practice, because that individual has rejected God in a particular way. And Paul is making a general point here, a societal point, and so we mustn't personalize it. The point is that God gives rebellious humanity over to these patterns of behavior because all human beings have turned their back on him. One way or another, we will display one or more of the things listed uh, in this passage. The point is that God gives rebellious humanity over to these patterns of behavior because all human beings have turned their back on him. So like parents who long for their children to do the right thing, sometimes there comes a point when they have to let their children go. Let them go and make their own mistakes. It is a painful thing for parents to do, but they do it in the hope that their children will see the error of their ways and come back to their senses and return to them. That is what God does with a society which is turning away from him. As we reject him and exchange the truth for him with a lie... So he says, like a parent, I've got to let them go. He takes his hand of restraint off us so that we can see the result of our rebellion. And so he gives us over to the kind of lifestyles that are described right through this passage, but he does it in the hope that we will see the error of our ways and return to him as a nation. Because we are so individualistic, that's something we don't often think about when it comes to this particular issue. Same-sex relationships, along with, I must say, the abandonment of the traditional view of marriage by heterosexuals, has been so embraced so quickly by our culture in the last years that in years to come we will see what a devastating impact the breakdown of the family has on British society at large. And desperately along the way it will cause great pain to many, many people. But my hope is that in the years to come, because this is why God lets us go sometimes, in the years to come, it will result in people returning in their thousands across this land, returning to the Lord, knowing that his ways are right and that the exchange we've made was a foolish and devastating mistake. See, it is clear then that uh, what the Bible says about God's design and about our rejection of God here It is clear that God's definition of marriage is between one man and one woman for life and that sex is to be reserved for a marriage between one man and one woman and any deviation from marriage as God has defined it is sinful. So halfway down the third page on the handout, what does the Bible say to those who are same-sex attracted then? What can we say to those who want to live a single celibate life? Well, let me acknowledge it's not easy. And uh, in the first instance, the Bible says to you, if this is you, uh, it says to you everything that we considered last time. If you weren't here last week, again, you can get hold of the uh, uh, the sermon online. Uh, And uh, the thing that we said last week is that the Bible affirms singleness. A life of singleness is not easy, but it's a gift from God to the world when it is lived for him. 
Uh, again, I won't rehearse the whole thing. You can listen to it online again if you want to from last week. But we need to say exactly the same to those who are single because they are same-sex attracted as we do to heterosexual single people. In short, the headline from last week from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 was that the life of singleness that is devoted to the spreading of the life and blessing of the gospel is something that should be honoured by the church. A life of singleness is a life that can be given in undivided devotion to the Lord without having to deflect be deflected by any of the affairs of the world, as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 7. A single life, highly committed to the Lord, is an honourable life. As we heard on the screen earlier, when we think about the Lord Jesus himself, we see that it isn't in any way a second-rate life. The Lord Jesus lived a celibate life all his life, and he was the most complete, fulfilled, and content human being who ever walked this planet. Singleness is not a second-rate existence. And if you're single because you are same-sex attracted, in one sense you are no different to those who are heterosexual and single. That said, I do want to acknowledge one difference. When I talk to young heterosexuals about singleness, they often have the thought that marriage might possibly come to them in the future. And with marriage comes the possibility of their own children and so a family and, of course, sex. And that is something that the person who is same-sex attracted will never have. So in that sense, those who are same-sex attracted are not exactly the same as heterosexual single people. And again, I want to acknowledge how hard that is. But when you're thinking through this, whoever we are, can we remember three things? First, some heterosexual people have not chosen to be single. And that is true of both blokes and girls, but perhaps especially girls, as there are more Christian girls than Christian guys in the church in Britain. And so when a Christian won't marry an unbeliever, it is often a very costly decision for the heterosexual. They end up being single even though that wasn't what they ever wanted. Secondly, there are those who've chosen marriage, but it didn't turn out the way they expected. Consider the godly Christian man whose wife is paralyzed or brain damaged in an accident shortly after they marry. He spends his life caring for her. Her condition might make sexual intimacy and having children impossible. See, the point is we live in a fallen world and things don't work out as we hoped. Bad things happen. And that includes marriages that don't work out very well. And so thirdly, when we're thinking of this, we must not view marriage as the promised land, as Sonia Crosley so helpfully expressed in the question time last week. There is a real danger in seeing marriage as the thing that brings happiness and fulfillment and identity and worth. We've already said through this series, marriage is a great thing, great gift given by God. But to give marriage and a traditional view of family life that kind of high ideal, total happiness and fulfillment and identity and worth is to give marriage a place that only Jesus Christ can have. Thinking of marriage like that will put an unrealistic and unmanageable burden on marriage and on your spouse. As you struggle with singleness, no matter who you are, heterosexual or same-sex attracted, please do remember that there are a lot of people in unhappy marriages, unhappy Christian marriages. See, what we're saying is don't picture in your mind a Disney wedding 
after which they all lived happily ever after. Don't consider marriage as the promised land. Rather, look to the promised land. The second point under here, the Bible points to the new creation. The new heavens and the new earth, uh, to, the, to the marriage that human marriage points to, to being with Jesus Christ forever. There's a quote from William Taylor on the bottom of page three. Whatever marriage may have been in this creation, it will not be as it is now in God's new creation. Jesus, the perfect bridegroom, will return to claim his bride. You and me, that is his church. And our lowly bodies will be transformed. All scars, all flaws, all failures and all disappointments will be removed forever. And one day we'll be in intimate relationship with our creator for all eternity. Then all the short-term trials of this fallen world, whatever they may be, together with all our disappointments, will be gone once and for all. You see, on that day, you won't look back and regret that you didn't have sex and you didn't get married. Eternity is the place where we will find fulfillment and happiness and everything we're looking for, everything we were made for. And so single Christian people who live a celibate Christian life because they really believe there is something greater to come for the Christian are a fantastic witness of this great eternal future. So Glyn Harrison writes, and now we're on the back page of the handout. It is important to grasp that single Christians who abstain from sex outside the marriage bond bear witness to the faithful nature of God's love with the same authority as those who have sex inside the marriage bond. Both paint pictures of God's faithfulness, but in different ways. Denying yourself something can be just as potent a picture of a thing's goodness as helping yourself to it. A celibate single life is not an unfulfilled, wasted life. It can be a powerful witness to the gospel, to the world. A powerful witness to a world which knows nothing of the real and most fulfilling love in the universe, the love of God. And that is the eternal perspective that tells you why, you ha- why we have to keep teaching this. So you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you will, please. Page um, 1147, I think this is the last Bible flick. Page 1147. We're still thinking about eternity and why it's so important that we teach this. Page 1147, bottom right-hand corner of the page if you've got a church Bible. Verse 9. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? And don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There are many things listed here that keep us out of the kingdom of heaven. But we're dealing with one particular issue this evening, uh, sexual sin. And we are thinking particularly about homosexual sin, homosexual sex. That is listed here as something that keeps people out of the kingdom of heaven. 
So when people accuse Christians of not being very loving to teach what we've been seeing from the Bible about homosexual practice this evening, when I'm accused of not being very loving, I have to keep reminding myself of this. Then I can see in the light of eternity, it is the most loving thing I can do. I don't want anyone to be outside the kingdom of heaven for eternity. Thinking about eternity makes all the sacrifices worthwhile. So Ed Shaw writes, won't my lifestyle choices seem eminently sensible then? Eternity with Jesus because of a life spent trusting in his words and repenting of my sins rather than eternity without him because of a life spent distrusting his words and rejoicing in my sins. I'm not going to be kicking myself for my lack of sex life in the painful past as I enjoy life in the perfect future. I'm not going to be asking God for my money back as I feast with him forever. I'm going to be enjoying perfection. Mine is going to be a story that will end well. And that is how it can be for anyone who turns to Jesus Christ in repentance and trusts him for forgiveness. Look what we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. And that is what some of you were. Were, past tense. Christians in the church in Corinth had been all the things of verses 9 and 10. And some had been practicing homosexuals. But they turned to Jesus in genuine repentance and when they did verse 11 they were washed they were sanctified they were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of God See, with Jesus there's always forgiveness there's always forgiveness and a fresh start with him don't think there is no way back Jesus death is sufficient to bring forgiveness to anyone whatever you've done And that's not just something that those who have failed sexually in same-sex relationships need to hear. It's something we all need to hear. Because, as I've said almost every week, all of us have failed sexually. And in many other ways as well. There are no exceptions. And knowing that is a huge relief, but it's also the perfect truth to create the perfect environment in which to help each other to live out the Christian life. We're all failures, and so when you fail, and when I tell you my failures, there should be no, no condemnation. As forgiven people, we should be able to be a community of grace and loving support. And that's exactly what we need when it comes to supporting one another. And especially what is needed for those who struggle with same-sex attraction. We began this evening by hearing Ed Shaw's challenge. Are there things we might need to actively repent of too? Well, that leads us to our last point on the handout. The Bible's challenge to God's people. Now I want to again uh, commend Ed Shaw's book to you, uh, The Plausibility Problem. Uh, we have copies available for this, uh, uh, over, uh, of this over in the uh, church centre, so you can get hold of one if you want. Uh, you can get them online as well. It's a book I think everyone should read, because as I've already said, this is an issue for us all. What do we need to do to make it plausible for those who are struggling with same-sex attraction to keep going in that struggle? To remain celibate and faithful? 
Last week, we were thinking of single, singleness. We, we thought about this pain and struggle of not having a family of your own. The challenge to the entire church is that we must be a family to single people. Not just in word, but in deed, really, opening up our home and our lives to people. Allowing them to hang out with us and to be part of our family as much as the family are part of the family. Last week, uh, we considered how hard it is for single people to cope with a lack of intimacy. This book explains how we need to have a different understanding of intimacy, how we need to be ready to open up to one another emotionally and to work out ways of expressing appropriate physical intimacy. That helps people who are are celibate. But there are other things here. Let me uh, give you another couple. One of the big issues in the gay community is that people who are same-sex attracted find their identity in their sexuality. We heard Sam Albury talk about that very issue. Ben started our meeting together with that very issue. As Christians, we should find our identity in Christ. But it's not just those who are same-sex attracted who place their identity in the wrong place. Most of us do as well. We define ourselves by our careers or where we live rather than being in Christ. You see, if we can change the way we think of ourselves, we can help one another, and we can help those who are same-sex attracted by getting that issue right, thinking rightly about our identity. It's an issue for us all. As the issue of suffering, also dealt with in this book. To be same-sex attracted and to remain celibate will be a great cause of personal sacrifice and suffering, possibly for the rest of your life. I remember a good friend of mine in London who was struggling with this issue every day. Every day it was a struggle. It was painful for him. But here's the problem for the church at large. We don't help because so often we avoid suffering at all costs. We don't really make significant sacrifices and suffer for the gospel in other areas of life. But if we would, Ed Shaw says that would really help him. When he's suffering for the gospel by remaining single and celibate, if he can look at others who are suffering for the gospel in other ways, but still real ways suffering for the gospel, it encourages him to keep standing firm. Do you see how on every issue we have a responsibility? to be living what other people have to live, just in our way, if we're heterosexual. Ed Shaw does it again and again with issue after issue. It is a brilliant book because it helps us to understand the issues and challenges of those who are same-sex attracted. But it's a brilliant book because it turns it back on all of us and says it's our issue as well. We need to change in the way we think and act. And if we will live this way as a community of grace, where there is forgiveness and acceptance and a readiness to open up our lives in support of one another, it will make living the Christian life easier for us all. And not least of all for those who are same-sex attracted and who struggle to live a celibate single life. And may I say, if that is you this evening... Let me say you are very welcome at here at Christ Church Forward. More than that, you are a valued member of this church family. More than that, we need you. And as a single person who is devoted to the Lord, 
Let me say we honour you. Let's pray together. Well, let me leave a moment of silence. A moment of silence for you to ask God to help you. Whether you're same-sex attracted or heterosexual, whether you're married or single, there must have been something for you in this talk. So reflect on it and think about how you need to respond now to the Lord. Amen. We're going to sing in uh, just a moment. Before we do, let me um, uh, hold up two things. Again, the plausibility problem, that book. There are copies of it over the way if you want to get hold of a copy. Um, We've also uh, got copies of this Church Family News uh, special edition from July 2013. When uh, it's slightly out of date, but there's a lot in it that's still uh, valuable on this very issue of same-sex attraction. So there are lots of these around. They're free. Just take one. Uh, please, if you'd like one. Uh, let me also remind you, on the bottom of uh, this handout, there are uh, things uh, for further reading. And I particularly want to hi- highlight, there is a living out course, uh, which is for those who are same-sex attracted uh, or those who have um, a very close family who are same-sex attracted um, and you want to know how to live this kind of celibate, faithful life. Um, I can uh, recommend that to you April the 4th in Manchester. Uh, So you might like to go along to that.